How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing the blue economy of California and beyond. The Pacific Ocean is a big part of the California dream, and yet many people have very little direct contact or knowledge of it beyond pricey property, pretty sunsets, and tasty seafood. The ocean is a bigger part of California's economy than one might think, and climate disruption is impacting the oceans and coasts in ways that many people are just beginning to realize. Over the next hour, we'll look at the state of the ocean along the Golden State and what we can expect as global carbon pollution continues to increase temperatures and sea levels. Our Climate One broadcast today will include questions from our audience at the Monterey Institute of International Studies in downtown Monterey. We're pleased to have with us three people deeply involved in understanding the economics and health of the oceans. Jason Scores is director of the Center for the Blue Economy at the Monterey Institute of International Studies. Mary Hagedorn is a research scientist at the Smithsonian Institution and also with the Hawaiian Institute of Marine Biology. And Michael Jones, president of the Maritime Alliance in San Diego. Please welcome them to the Monterey Institute. Mary Hagedorn, let's begin with you. Uh, if the Pacific Ocean was a patient, how would you assess the overall health of the ocean? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say that uh, it's probably a middle, middle-aged middle American <laughs> that's probably eaten too many hamburgers and smokes. <laughs> not, too, not too healthy. Okay. No. <laughs> Average. Okay, so that's, we've got that image of the over. And and uh, what what are the causes of that that poor health? Um, some of them are local and some of them are global. Most of them are caused by us humans, and um, the, the local ones are caused by local pollution, sedimentation, poor farming practices, et cetera, et cetera, from sources like cities and farms and and deforestation. The global ones are caused by our overuse of fossil fuels. And um, the um, fossil fuels are burnt. It produces CO2, which goes up into the atmosphere. And you can think of it as sort of blanketing the earth. It warms the earth. And then at the same time, it is, it is, it is sort of uh, sucked down into the ocean. So it, the CO2 forms is a sink, is, is a sink in the ocean. And it's causing the ocean to become more acidic. And this acidity is corrosive to a lot of marine life in the ocean from the base of our food chain all the way up to fish and whales and things like that. So it's having profound effects on um, every creature in our ocean. And we'll get into some more of that in a moment. Jason Scores, um, how is this impacting California? Why should an average Californian care about, well, the ocean's getting more acidic? Well, what's the impact? Yeah, um, there's, a, there's the main reasons, if you want to think about the California economy, about three-quarters of it is in the coastal zone. 
And so it really is the economy, is these, these few really precious miles, both the, the industry, the real estate, the tourism, um, the, the, the shipping. And so pretty much the health of the coastal ocean economy is the, the health of, of the California economy. And as, as I've mentioned, the, the prognosis is not terminal illness, but it's not great, and it cer- certainly could be a lot better. Um, also, some of these global trends, um, especially ocean acidification and then sea level rise, um, also have some really potential um, medium and long-term costs that we haven't even begun to address, that that anyone who cares about fiscal responsibility and, and, and things of that nature should really be paying really serious attention to, to these issues. And we'll get into to that shortly as well. Uh, Michael Jones, uh, there is a lot of technology down in San Diego that uh, the state of California, a lot of people aren't even aware of. So tell us ab- about the importance of sort of the blue tech economy in, in San Diego. There's more of a positive side to this story. Right. Well, um, I think we all would agree that the oceans in, impact our climate. They impact uh, so much that uh, for us. But we look at this and say that um, uh, there's a tremendous opportunity. The hope is that we uh, uh, develop science-based industries. And it turns out that San Diego, by virtue of the Navy and Scripps Institution Oceanography and just a wonderful place to be, has developed the largest um, uh, blue-tech cluster, so maritime technology cluster in the United States. And uh, it's growing very rapidly uh, until we did a study about a year ago with some partners. Uh, no one realized it was the largest industry in San Diego, uh, and that it's growing between about 6 and 20% per annum. Uh, we've divided it into 14 sectors, and it's uh, very diverse, um, but it's uh, very exciting. So we look at these opportunities, these problems that we're facing, and hopefully we as a, as a state can look at them and say, let's uh, – Let's try and figure out how we can do it right and, and become a model for the country and the world. And if I believe uh, correctly that some of those maritime jobs are more export-oriented, right, Then and that there's, there's a lot of jobs associated with them, those industries? Yeah, I mean, two things that are really quite interesting. When you think about many wonderful high-tech industries, let's say biotech or telecom, often they're very white-collar oriented. There's not a lot of blue-collar jobs and uh, we've just finished going to uh, about 20 different companies with a series of elected officials and economic development folks. And uh, one of the things that's very apparent when you're visiting these companies is that, number one, it, this is probably the most export-oriented industry I've ever known. Um, 151 countries uh, border the oceans. It's about three-quarters of the countries in the world. Uh, and every country has water. Um, so they all need uh, maritime technology. So the, if we're the world leader, we're exporting all around the world. Secondly, there's a lot of blue-collar jobs, which is really quite remarkable. So these white-collar jobs are terrific, but we want to really have across the whole spectrum uh, jobs for people. And 25 to 60 percent of the jobs in most of these manufacturing companies are blue-collar jobs. So it's really very interesting. And are some of these technologies able to address the concerns that that Mary and Jason mentioned, which is acidification? Are they helping to understand what's happening in the oceans because of climate change? Can we get further knowledge, or is it more about – extracting resources from the ocean? Uh, well, you can't, unless you can measure something, you can't really, don't know how to deal with it. So ocean observation is the basis for whether it's mapping and eventually marine spatial planning or it's, it's finding out what the problems are. So we really have to go out, put sensors in the water. You have to understand. Um, so you need that technology to be doing that. So whether it's a platform like an unmanned robot or it's the sensors themselves, what's the oxygen levels, you know, the current, all the kinds of things that we need. Um, you need the technology for that. 
Mary Hagedorn, you, uh, do you see need for further research? Are there tools that we the, that need to be developed because we don't understand what's happening in the oceans because of climate change? It's a very good question. Um, the um, Smithsonian is just starting a really large program. Um, it's called Marine Geos, and it, that stands for Global Earth Observatory. It will be a long-term uh, monitoring system throughout the world, um, and um, it will be looking at just those things. We'll be taking measurements in a very standardized way in different longitudes and different latitudes around the world to try and extract that information about what's happening in the ocean and where is it changing fastest, and, and what, what does that say about the biodiversity? So we're, we'll be doing that in a very systematic way um, across the, the, the ocean. Um, we've actually just started in the last few months. And Jason Scores, let's get you on that. What do you think are the big unknowns about the oceans that, that we ought to put more research and, and uh, resources to understanding what's happening? Yeah, so I'll make two points on that. I think what now what we're seeing, you know, we're trying to work in the climate adaptation space, so getting people to say, all right, climate change is real, what do we do in the coastal zones? And the the level of detail of a lot of the, the science right now is at kind of more state level or large regional level. So, you know, your average city planner says, okay, I understand it's happening, but what does it mean for, for really at a fine level? So that's really needed, and I think that's the direction is, is partly is at the fine level, so city managers can actually have something tangible. I would make one other observation, though, which is and, and this is why I think the center has a unique role in, in this space is because there's always going to be a lot of uncertainty in climate change, there, but yet uncertainty can't be an excuse for inaction. And what we're trying to say is within some relatively reasonable range of consensus, we know the costs are going to be so high that we can't wait for a level of precision that some people might be used to. And so that's a kind of a risk perception and a policy perception, and it's a changing the kind of the scope of thinking, which is a very challenging thing to do. But we, while we, so we need the precision, but we also need to know that we're never going to get the level of precision that we probably would want, and yet we still need to act. Uh, yeah, the, they say in the military, if you wait until you're certain, you're probably dead. So you can't <laughs> wait for uh, certainty to act. Uh, but, but what should a city manager in Monterey or Santa Cruz or someone, what, what should they do right now? What kind of adaptation, yeah. you know, buffering against uh, sea level rise, acidification, what, what can yeah. be done? Yeah. So no, it's a great question. So in California, this work is just really starting to be taken seriously. Um, the Nature Conservancy is working with local communities on building some tools, some GIS tools. Um, and I, it's, I'm the, 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 the name is actually escaping me right now. Maybe we can put a link on your website later where you can actually go and city planners can then look at scenarios and look and say, okay, under this mid-level scenario, it literally looks, you know, um, census block by census block at how many, what's going to be underwater, what the hundred-year storm might look at. And they can take that and go, okay, let's now have meetings and talk about 25-year plans and maybe we don't want to put that power plant right there or maybe the road that new road so start the conversation is part one and then i think the other thing is and we'll, we'll probably touch on this later is these costs these are also opportunities and we want to think about um also you know creating new ecological models new interactions between the the, um, the science and policy and such that, you know, people are living more um, in harmony with the, the coastal environments that might actually open up a lot of business opportunity that we can then export, and that's some of the stuff Michael's talking about as well. well let's talk about time scale because people often think of – Climate in terms of centuries or thousands of years and sea level rise is like, well, what's, what's the sea level rise been? What, seven inches in the last hundred years? Uh, 
doesn't seem like much. You know, is this something that could really affect people in, in our lifetime or is this going to be so slow and so incremental that eh, we're not going to have to worry about it? Jason, and then ask Mary. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's sad that we need major natural disasters for people to kind of see it, but now we are. And, and I think we're at that inflection point where people are saying when you get the thousand-year storm every ten years, it's not a thousand-year storm anymore, and you have to start changing your mentality. I think when people see maps that the entire airport of San Francisco could be underwater in 50 years, you know, which is one of the major transportation hubs for the, for the world, when you start looking at um, the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach being inundated, and those are the biggest ports in the United States, so this is part of it is this awareness. I think we are at the inflection point. So I don't want to hog the time here right now. But I think, yes, I think it, this is immediate. This is now. This is accelerating. And, you know, the good side is people realize that. People realize that in Hawaii, Mary Hagedorn? Oh, it's difficult to say. I have a brother who doesn't believe in it. <laughs> He's in Hawaii. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, but I do agree with Jason. I think that especially in the Pacific, you have a lot of islands that don't have very much, there's not a lot of surge, you know, ocean surge. I mean, they're, they're less than a foot above the ocean, you know, so seven inches is quite a bit for them. And if you add a storm onto that, that's really quite substantial. And that means whole islands and whole populations moving. You know, I know Australia has a plan for uh, immigration for a lot of these people to to move to Australia, or they, they hope to move to Australia. So I think people are thinking about it. I think that there's, there, especially in some of the smaller, lower-lying islands of this Pacific, this is a huge concern. If anyone hasn't seen uh, the movie Island President, it's a fantastic uh, a documentary about the Maldives and the president there, and they're facing an existential threat, threat from sea level rise, and they may move to, to other, other countries. But what is, Mary Hagedorn, what is Hawaii doing to prepare for this? I don't know the answer, quite frankly. Um, we certainly have a, we certainly have a great awareness just from tsunamis. You know, I I live on the water and and um, I don't live in a tsunami inundation zone, but I know the map and I, and and it's in our yellow pages. You know, so I can look in the yellow pages and I can say, well, this is a good place to go if you don't want to be hit by a, a tsunami. Um, you know, I think people are seeing their houses being eroded. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff. You know, because we get you know big ocean storms that come in in, in the winter and those are really starting to erode the coasts and people are getting very upset that their houses are you know, t- now too close to the water. Um, but I, I don't know the action plan in Hawaii, but I certainly can find out and, and help you put it on your website. Uh, Michael, San Diego, big maritime town, Navy town, uh, is climate change, sea level rise on the, you know, they've just redone, put a lot of capital into downtown San Diego that's right along the waterfront. Uh, the people who've made those investments, or is there awareness of uh, sea level rise in San Diego? I think we're a little schizophrenic right now. Um, there's no question that there are people beginning to think about it. The Navy, the military is certainly going through processes, uh, thinking about, all the assets they have in, in Coronado and, and in Camp Pendleton because they're all going to be uh, under, in danger. Uh, the, the port of San Diego is, is, thinks it's in the vanguard of, of discussing this. Um, but people haven't really started thinking about what are we going to do in the, in the pran- tangible sense of how far are we going to move inland as we begin to re- withdraw from the ocean. Is it a half a mile? Is it a mile? particularly when you have a relatively flat landscape for the first mile or two. I mean, how are you going to condemn all those places and say we're going to build another harbor? Um, those are incredibly important 
but difficult political, economic, social decisions that have to be made. We believe that one of the opportunities is large floating platforms, that we begin to put uh, desalination, harbors, airports, and let them float so we don't have to fight the battles of putting something on the coast and don't have to worry as much about about uh, how high is high when the water is going up. And I think it is part of our future. Unfortunately, the United States is not really doing much related to large floating platforms yet. Sounds cool. It sounds very expensive. Actually, it's not more expensive. And you have to remember that in 1809, uh, Bristol had the first floating harbor. If you go back to uh, the Roman days, Carthage had a whole harbor that was floating. Uh, in the Second World War, we, uh, the Germans weren't going to give us the keys to Dieppe and, uh, and Brest, uh, so we built two floating harbors. And for eight months after the invasion, the British were still using their harbor. Um, so it's something we can build. Uh, we were actually under non-disclosure agreement for about a year with Lawrence Livermore National Labs. They'd been looking at large floating harbors offshore, uh, and we need to build new harbors, and most people don't want them in their backyard, and there aren't many natural harbors. And for both homeland security reasons and, and marine highway reasons, we should be thinking about building something 20 to 30 miles offshore. The cost to build a new harbor, forget whether or not it's the, the smart thing to do long, long term, the cost to build a new harbor is going to be as much to build it and float it as it would be to build it in Mexico and Punta Colonet, which is probably one of the places that would be built otherwise. And you also think the same for desal plants. Desalination plants should be built offshore for the same reasons. Um, yeah, I mean, they're leaving aside the environmental issues for a second, which I personally believe have been well addressed uh, today about intake and, 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 and output. Um, why are we putting a plant that's cost a half a billion or billion dollars on the shore uh, and spending 12 years trying to permit it and then having a pipe that goes out three miles to pull the water in and then a pipe three miles out to push the brine back out? so that it dissipates quickly, when we could have a ship three miles offshore that pushes the fresh water in. Uh, and and every when Banda Aceh happened, the United States sent an uh, aircraft carrier, and they have enormous... That diesel. was the Indonesian tsunami. Yes, the Indonesian tsunami. But around the world, the U.S. Navy, every every cruise ship, if anybody's ever been a cruiser, uh, cruise liner, every Navy ship has desal. And around the world, there's over 15,000 desal plants. But the United States has not been very encouraging of desal, although we are the world leader in the technology. So we believe, to answer your question, that floating desal plants makes perfect sense. Even though San Diego just spent how much on a desal plant? Sunk a bunch of money into the um, desal The largest plant. desal plant in the Western Hemisphere will be built 50, uh, 50 million uh, gallons a day in San Diego County. I mean, I, I'm personally thrilled that they're finally building it. Uh, it started 12 years ago. Um, so in the last 12 years, we know a lot more about climate change. And one of the things we have to say is that, um, like knowing our own bodies, you know, we've, we've gotten much better at how we eat. Um, we're just beginning to be able to measure in the oceans the way we really need to. There are a lot of new tools. So I think we're, we're much better. We're better able to measure the kinds of things that we need to measure today. Quickly, what's the price tag of that desal plant in San Diego? I think it's about $800 million. Jason Scores, desal a good idea for the future water needs in California? You know, put me on the spot here. Um, I've, I've been superficially involved with some of the desal plants in the area. There's actually in, up where I live in, in the water district that I'm in is one of the, the, the most impacted by potential droughts, and, and desal is a serious option. I, I think I would largely side with Michael here that 
most of the environmental concerns have been addressed through some pretty good technology. The water comes in extremely slowly. The entrainment issues aren't a huge deal. They actually, the water they're putting in is actually a lot of times less, you know, is more treated or less potentially toxic than anything that comes out of, you know, a typical water treatment plant. And for, for a lot of areas, they can be small enough that they're actually, they're not, have a huge impact. What pe some people argue is, is the energy intensity. You know, getting water other ways can be pretty energy intense. Um, and, you, you know, if we start building with solar and things like that, I think that, that addresses that. So to answer your question, I think, I think the main environmental marine impacts have been addressed and it should be considered, especially when the alternatives are sucking more water out of streams that kill then kill fish. Uh, you know, terrestrial habitat, suck water in anyway because you get saltwater intrusion. Um, I always think conservation is the first, you know, first line. But, for example, where I live, we've already are 40 percent lower in terms of per capita use in the entire state, which is already ahead of the country. So you're talking, you're getting to margins which are, which are pretty tight to get beyond. Um, but I would push the conservation to the limit before I was in favor of a desal. But then at that point, it, I think it's certainly viable. If you're just joining us on the radio, Jason Scores, the director of the Center for the Blue Economy at the Monterey Institute of International Studies. Our other guests today at Climate One are Michael Jones, president of the Maritime Alliance in San Diego, and Mary Hagedorn with the Smithsonian Institution. Mary, let's uh, close this out with uh, would you support desalination in Hawaii? Well, I was actually glad you asked me that question because I have a question for them. There is, a, there is a group in Hawaii that are talking more about water extraction technology and putting that into every house. And um, the company that I've, I've spoke to said they can do close to 3,000 gallons a day of, of water extraction. So that's enough for an individual house. What does and that mean, extraction? Sucking it out of the ground? Is that no, no. It comes out of the air. Yeah. So it's a dehumidifier, basically. Ah. And it's pure water. So I, I wondered what your thoughts were on water extraction technology, especially places like islands and remote areas that don't have huge populations but still have water needs. Michael Jones? I have no knowledge of the economics of that. You know, the problem with many of these is the, the water uh, power nexus is what does it cost to do these things. Uh, and, and that's what I just understand. The, 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 large de the reason that people have built large power plants and large desal plants typically because the price point is so much lower. And I'm a big believer in, in uh, decentralized power and water, anything you can do like that. But it has to be at a price point that we can live with. Mm -hmm. So I just don't know anything about the economics. I'd love to talk to the company, though. Jason Scores, uh, Michael Jones earlier talked about basically a managed retreat is the phrase that's used for moving homes and businesses back from the coast. Is that a foregone conclusion? Is California going to be walking it back from the coastline in the next – during the 21st century? Is it going to be a walk back? I would say yes. Um, I'd say less than some other parts of the country where it's going to be a real massive shift because of hurricanes and storms and and much lower, you know, a lot of Northern California, as you can tell, is on cliffs and is above sea level pretty quickly inland, so it might not be as dramatic here. But yes, I think there's no question the economics of armoring, you know, you're, if you're very moderate armoring, and maybe Michael knows something about more modern technology, but right now is $10,000 a foot with very, you know, which, with maintenance, with maintenance costs, and then with, with the storm surges, you know, the longevity can be as low as, you know, 20 or 30 years. 
So you're talking about tens of billions of dollars to armor the coast. Then you have huge environmental impacts of, you know, the sand migration, and you have just, you know, you know, huge problems with the coastal environment that gets created by that. So I don't think, you know, if any running of the numbers, we could do that up and down the coast. So um, some managed retreat, I, I pretty much think, is in the cards. And then also isn't it the fact that if uh, some people armor their uh, property, that that kind of uh, negatively impacts their neighbors because it just sort of shifts the water. uh, You know, you can protect yourself, but you're really harming your neighbors. Yeah, and this is actually why I think it's something that hopefully some of my students here will look into. There's some really interesting legal issues and also the kind of public interest private rights with real estate in particular. There is very strong private property rights, obviously, in the United States and California, and you right now have the, if you have the money, you can throw the riprap and the seawall and whatever it is, but then, like you said, you create the erosion increases around you, and so you have these negative impacts. Um, and this still hasn't been fully worked out in the legal system, and we don't really understand this. It's been, I think, at a low enough level that we kind of use deal with it on ad hoc, but I think going forward it is going to be something that that there's going to be have to be a more systemic kind of regulatory government thinking on this because it's not sustainable. There was a fantastic article in Vanity Fair a couple of months ago that showed Malibu and Nantucket, and it talked about ultra-wealthy landowners there trying to fortify their, their compounds and mansions, and a few of them doing that, and uh, – Futilely, really, uh, that showed the the width of the Malibu Beach uh, 30 years ago was very wide, and now it's down to just a narrow strip, uh, which raises the question, uh, Jason Scores, of tourism and beaches in California, what we're looking at in terms of economic impacts. Yeah. Well, let me say, here, here's where I think the opportunity part comes in. You know, California is, is a vanguard in public access to beaches, and it's one of the greatest things about living in, in the state. And so I think this managed retreat that we're talking about or this rethinking of some of the infrastructure could come with actually a lot more public access. And it could come back with some ecological restoration. There could be a lot of the technology to go with that. And then some really, I mean, I'm not an architect, but I've seen enough cool architecture things of the future and green architecture where I could start envisioning some really cool new restored wetlands with the kind of people move back a little ways. And you have some waterways and you have some boating, sorry, and you have some shops and things interwound with it. And national parks that are much bigger, and actually be very economically revitalizing for a lot of areas, and and and, and very nice places to live. So I think I, I think you could really see a lot of the opportunity there. But then who who buys out the property owners that are impacted by this? I mean, Michael Jones um, is San Diego thinking about buying off uh, coastal property owners. The U.S. is doing a little bit of that in along uh, the Jersey Shore after Hurricane Sandy, uh, but not everyone. Well, that's a very interesting question, but I don't think anybody's got an answer in San Diego at this point. What I will mention, though, is is to this point of resanding your beaches. Uh, Imperial Beach in San Diego uh, spent two million dollars to put to dredge and then put new sand down. It was gone inside of months. Um, Florida recently, there was an article saying that they're running out of sand um, to dredge to put on their beaches. So we can only do this for so long before we create other problems for ourselves. You know, what's so interesting in this whole area of marine spatial planning, we need to do a much better job of understanding how the interrelationships between what we're doing in the ocean and where we put things. And it it all becomes one big bundle, which makes it more difficult, but it, it, it has to be done. We have to look at this in a holistic manner. Mary Hagedorn, you said once that People have a greater understanding of 
forests and the impact of forests on climate change than they do the ocean. And something you said to me when we talked earlier, that half of the world's oxygen comes from the ocean. I didn't realize that. Um, so do you think, is that true, that people have a greater appreciation of deforestation uh, than the oceans, which we don't see or interact with that much? I think it's very true. Um, and I think very few people understand that every second breath comes from the ocean, really. You know, um, if you think about it, you know, every second breath that you take, that some creature in the ocean, you know, some plant in the ocean has made that for you. And so um, the things that we're doing to the ocean, especially in terms of destabilizing ecosystems, we don't know how it's going to affect that very essential, um, you know, ecosystem service that the ocean does for us such as creating oxygen. So that's the bottom line for us in all of this. I mean, cities can move, people can move, but if we run out of oxygen, we're in real deep trouble. And let's talk about coral. You're doing some research on on coral, the base of the food chain. What's happening with coral and why is there cause for concern and what's some of the the solutions you're working on? So um, as as one of the ecosystems in the ocean that are are having trouble, coral is one of them. It's perhaps one of the the one that's most extinction-prone right now. And coral basically are the apartments of the ocean. And so they provide houses and and living places for many of the animals in the ocean, 25% of Everything in the ocean lives on a coral reef at some point. Um, it may move away. It may come back. But it's, they're very important in terms of nurseries um, and maintaining our, our fisheries, basically. And um, we're, we're losing them because of temperature changes, because of, as I said, the local and global causes, but also diseases are a big problem. And so what I'm doing, and all this conversation is really focused on the future, which I think is fantastic. It's very hard to get people to focus on the future and to act now and to be thoughtful about the future. And so what we're doing at the Smithsonian is we've created a frozen repository for coral. We now have 1%, which sounds small, <laughs> but it's really quite big. 1% of all the coral in the, in the world is now in a frozen repository. And what that means is that they're frozen but alive. And the idea would be that if perhaps in the future the oceans were more like they were, say, 50 years ago, we might be able to use this frozen but alive coral and reseed the ocean with it. And so that's sort of a Noah's Ark kind of thing, planning for uh, some dark days to, yeah. to, to bring back. Exactly. And it's not just coral. We're working on fish as well, and we're working on algae and a, a number of organisms in the ocean. Jason Scores, what does this mean, the, the bleaching events and, and the deterioration of, of coral mean for subsistence fishermen that are account for a lot of economies in Indonesia and other places? A lot of the world just relies on daily catch to survive. Yeah, yeah there's, uh, estimates are around a billion people who who get a, a large share of their daily protein from, from, from fishing and from seafood. And so, yeah, this is, it's pretty bleak for them. And, and, you know, the one positive though is, is that we've seen corals grow back pretty quickly and be pretty resilient in some places where they are protected. Now, obviously, big macro phenomenon like ocean acidification and climate change um, is, is a, a difficult to reverse. But, we, you know, coral, I think people have seen, and obviously, Mary, you're, you're, you're more um, expert at this than, than I, but have actually rebounded a lot in Micronesia where they've been under protection. We do we work a lot with groups protecting. So there's a, there's a happy story here. I would also say that this kind of goes in with one of the themes, which is all of these challenges are also opportunities for business, they're opportunities for new technology, they're opportunity for new legal policy frameworks, and 
you know, California should be the place where it's all done, maybe Hawaii as well. Um, and um, because really this is, we're just at the tip of the iceberg and, and we, you know, we, we want to be ahead of the curve thinking about these. And I, and I, think, um, I think California could be the place where all the, you know, the solutions emanate from. And so what should California do to, to advance this blue tech uh, economy and, and, to, and to do that? Is California recognizing, uh, perhaps this is one for, for Michael Jones, is California uh, embracing the opportunity that Jason just outlined? Um, I, I think it's beginning to, and, and I'd like to make an observation. I think a lot of people will, or some people will use the word sustainability, and what they mean is just don't touch my ocean. Um, that's not going to happen. Um, we, the only way we can feed 9 billion people is with protein from the ocean. Uh, and if we don't produce the fish, or, uh, uh, whether it's aquaculture or, you know, if we're fortunate, there'll be more coming back, um, they'll, be, they'll, be, they'll be catching them somewhere else and not using necessarily science-based technology. So I, I want to just make the observation that, that uh, to Jason's point, um, we in California should take it upon ourselves um, both because it's the right thing to do um, to, to promote science-based uh, ocean industries. It's also the right thing to do for jobs, for us and for our children. Um, but we need to be uh, understanding from technology point of view, from policy point of view, legal point of view, how are we going to grapple with these questions? Uh, the state of California uh, has begun to uh, focus on the blue economy. Uh, Governor's Office of Business and Economic Development has begun to focus a number of universities begin to focus. The San Diego Community College District has chosen maritime as one of six areas it's going to focus on. Um, we've got several universities thinking about ocean engineering that doesn't exist in our part of the world today. Um, so we've got more and more people beginning to understand that, A, it's critically important, and, B, we have to do it right. Uh, we can be leaders, and it's something I think that we really need to do. And it's one of the reasons that I wanted to come to this event tonight to talk about this. And how much of that work is uh, aimed at uh, harvesting kelp to make cosmetics or to harvest uh, oil offshore? How much of it is extractive? Um, uh, it's impossible to say what percentage is extractive, but I'll just at the point of, of uh, kelp, for example, there was a company called CP Kelco that was harvested uh, kelp in, in San Diego for many, many, many years, decades. And I don't know, a decade or so ago, they shut down because it was too expensive. But at one point, they harvested at a, at a time that wasn't right. In other words, uh, the, it's better when there's warm water and cold water and not when it mixes up. And they ended up harvesting at a time where they killed a lot of kelp. And that turned a lot of people against them. And it wasn't that they did it maliciously. It's that the science wasn't there. They didn't realize what they were doing. And so scientists and business have to work together. I mean, again, we go back to the science-based industries. We have done things. Uh, nobody wants to hurt the ocean. I mean, nobody walks out and says, tomorrow I'm going to get up and hurt the ocean. But what they haven't understood sometimes is the implications of it. And that's why, again, I think universities, scientists uh, need to be working hand-in-hand -hand with uh, the blue economy, the, the, the business side of this. Jason Scores, as a percentage of overall funding, how important is uh, federal funding for oceans? Do we, does the United States spend much money on understanding um, the oceans versus uh, other areas? Um, much less than it should. It's obviously been cut um, a lot, both in the sequestration and actually before. Um, and, you know, 
No, um, there's not the commensurate amount studying oceans as there is anything terrestrial. It's still, you know, it's still disproportionately terrestrial. Um, there's, you know, there's that bias that's kind of built in because the, the ocean is out of sight, out of mind. I think, again, that's changing. Um, you know, actually, Michael just told me something interesting in the prelude to this talk that it's much harder to go down to the bottom of the ocean than it is to go to the moon. And I didn't really understand that. And, and, and so part of it also has been technological limitations, I think, um, which are now being overcome. And uh, I think, you know, part of our mission here at the center is to get the economic importance of the ocean on, on the radar screen to do things like push for more federal funding, but also business investment and across the board funding because it's, it's, it hasn't had its fair share. Michael Jones, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, it's actually a big part of the Department of Commerce. People often don't realize that's where it sits. Uh, so it implies a business function. But is there a business case for, for NOAA and, and it's what it does in the oceans? Um, okay, so two answers. In 2000, January 2010, I w went to the Department of Commerce and had a person from NOAA there, two people in the Department of Commerce, and then a division of the Department of Commerce called the U.S. Commercial Service, which is responsible for helping U.S. companies export successfully. And they told me I was the first person that had ever been there to talk about the blue economy in January of 2010. Now, this is one of the oldest industries in the world, and I was the first person they said that had ever been there to talk about it. Now, the good news is that in the summer of 2010, the U.S. Commercial Service actually created a worldwide team. They now have 80 people in 30 countries trying to help U.S. companies export more successfully. So... You know, the, I, I guess the answer is, uh, and the woman from the NOAA said, gosh, we don't really do uh, business. Um, she was very nice, but she says, we're scientists here. Now, fast forward, and we were reason, reason, recently chosen uh, to do a, a, a report for NOAA on the economic impact for the United States of ocean observation. And nobody's ever studied the, important, the importance, the economic importance, of the work that NOAA has been doing uh, for the country of ocean observation. And again, we just talked about why ocean observation is critical because we can't, if we can't measure it, we can't know how to replace it. We don't know how to deal with it. But nobody's ever studied it before. So that study is now being done. Uh, something else that uh, perhaps is understudied, uh, I was in Fairbanks, Alaska uh, last year and at the uh, Arctic Research Center, and people were talking about uh, methane release from the ocean floor. And I've looked at a lot of reporting on this, and it seems to be off the radar, Jason, scores in terms of the amount. This was a Russian researcher who said, we don't know how much is there. We know it's a lot. We don't know how quickly it could be released. But if it happens quickly, the amount of methane that could be released from the ocean floor could be really significant. Is that on the, anyone's research radar? You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not a real expert on this. I do know that there's, there's a lot of issues with that in the, in the permafrost as it melts, that right. that has huge amounts of methane. Obviously, methane for, you know, the layperson is just think of your basic greenhouse ga gra gas times, you know, many orders 14, of magnitude yeah. or, or, or an order of magnitude. And so it's that it is. It's one of those they call it kind of the negative feedback loop, right, that actually climate change can create conditions that actually exacerbate climate change. So that's one of those negative tipping points that absolutely I know people are very concerned about. I don't know the science well enough to know where we're at on that. And it's not uh, on a lot of radars. Uh, Michael Jones, you told uh, believe that when NAFTA was formed, the North American Free Trade Agreement, there weren't even codes for 
ocean commerce, which means that it wasn't even on the radar of people who created the sort of the, the taxonomy of commerce during NAFTA. Uh, Jason said it before, we live on land and that ocean's pretty and it's just flat out there and somehow you assume it goes on forever. We don't really in- realize that we already are using it uh, in many, many ways. But uh, unfortunately, uh, the people that – when we went from what we call SIC codes, the standard, standardized industrial industri- industry classifications, when NAFTA came along, we went to the North American Industrial Classification. And the reason was because Canada, Mexico, and United States wanted to be able to judge the trade between each other. Uh, and unfortunately, they were, did not do a good job of understanding all the ocean industries as a result of which, in the study that we did uh, a year ago uh, showing 46,000 jobs and $14 billion of blue economy revenue in San Diego, they had to use 200 next codes. That's an unheard of number because the government doesn't really understand how to capture the information. So, you, again, you can't, you can't change, you can't promote what you can't measure, uh, and that's really unfortunate, uh, and, it, and it plays itself out in a number of ways. Jason Scores, anything further to say in terms of what ought to be done? Yeah, well, that, that's a kind of great kind of wrap-up for me in the sense that what one of the big things that the center does, we have the National Oceanomics Program. The center for the Blue Economy center here for the at the Blue Modern Economy. Institute. Yeah, and we were the first people to actually do this basic um, work that, that Michael was talking about, which is to start classifying the ocean and coastal economy. This methodology has now been um, copied and used by other countries, including now Canada and uh, many European countries. And part of our expansion plans now are to create standardized accounts that account for all maritime technology and all the new industries emerging, internationalize this, and really have a global body of data to really promote um, this work. And so that's kind of our next, you know, three-year mission. Excellent. Also, you've written that 80% of Americans live on coasts and along the Great Lakes states, which produce 83% of the uh, the country's GDP and also the fastest growing. So that's quite a – in some way it's obvious that people live along the coast, but you think 80%, that's pretty darn big. Kind of – what about the heartland is what yeah, I thought when yeah, I read that. Yeah. Well, and it's also – it's increasing. Not only is it that big, but it's actually increasing, um, you know – the, 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 you know, the, obviously the, the rest of the United States is extremely important, but if in terms of just your kind of biggest bang for the buck in terms of understanding economic impacts, it's really from the coasts inland, not the other way around. We're talking about the uh, blue ocean economy at the Monterey Institute of International Studies. I'm Greg Dalton, and this is Climate One. Again, I'd like to invite our audience participation to uh, come on up and uh, join us for, um, for a question here for our experts about the oceans. Yes, welcome. Hi, thank you to all of our panelists for joining us this evening. My name is Matt Nichols, and I'm a student here at the Institute. Um, I have a question about liquefied natural gas terminals, which um, in light of the huge fracking boom in the United States, I imagine will be playing a big part in the coastal economy in coming decades. I know there are a lot of proposed terminals that are being uh, reviewed. Um, Can our panelists speak a little bit about how those types of developments might affect the coastal economy and ecology? Michael, floating LNG terminals, multi-billion-dollar facilities. Yeah, I'm I'm actually not an expert in this at all, but uh, there are, in fact, um, increasingly uh, trying to put those uh, not in the middle of the harbor, both for uh, logistical reasons but also for homeland security reasons, Uh, and they are uh, spending quite a bit of money to put them uh, further offshore. Um, obviously, liquid natural gas is uh, a cleaner fuel than others, 
and it's good that we're able to export more. Um, I don't know uh, if they do a good job on the environmental side, why it should be uh, more polluting on the export than on the import. Um, and I think it's good for the country. So um, I, I like the fact that people that have money, oil and gas has money, uh, will pioneer industries. Um, so from my point of view, it's something that, that I uh, embrace. I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I do think it is coming, and, and I, I, I think it's something that we, uh, that we need to live with and, and should support. There's a lot of people who want to export natural gas. There's a big supply. Uh, a lot of suppliers would like to have an international price, which would be helped by having export terminals. You mentioned the national security aspect. That's, is that because LNG is highly flammable? Could be. Well, it's, it's not. The, I mean, uh, the answer is if it goes up, it, it's, it can be catastrophic. Uh, there's only a couple of cases. Uh, there, I think, was one in Libya where a natural gas, natural gas plant went up. And it blew up, and but it, it the biggest concern is that a terrorist would bring a bomb into a place like Long Beach, where there's an LNG plant, and can get close enough to create essentially a terrible catastrophe. Um, so by putting the ships offshore, and 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 uh, again, there are logistics reasons to do that, but there are also homeland security reasons that one would make that decision. Mary Hagedorn, did you want to say something on LNG exports? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, uh, we should we should diversify, you know. But um, I have to say that, you know, in terms of the ecology of the extraction, um, I think we could do a much better job in how the chemicals that we use to extract the, the natural gas, I think it's very polluting to our, our water resources. And, um, you know, our water resources are going to be some of the most precious that we have in the next 30 years, and natural gas will look like a joke. Um, so I think we need to be very careful with our freshwater systems and our, our ecosystems and need to do a much better job in how we frack. We're talking about the blue economy at a meeting of Climate One at the Monterey Institute of International Studies. Let's have our next audience question. Hi, my name is Nathaniel Maynard, also from the Monterey Institute. Earlier you were talking about some of the costs and benefits of desalinization and other blue technologies. What are some guiding principles we can craft or influence that will help make sure that blue technologies avoid some of the negative conservation or environmental impacts that previous technologies have? Michael Jones? That's a really interesting question. Um, you, you, I think you have to look at, at two levels. You have to decide whether or not it is a good bargain today, and then you have to decide whether it's a good bargain tomorrow. So on the first case, uh, I think the cost, after all the financing was done, is about $1,800 an acre foot. And I think by the time you put all the costs together, remember water is free from the Colorado River and from the snowpack. You have to move it. Uh, See, so there is a cost attached to it. But, you know, God has given us this free resource, so to speak, whereas we're desalinating water out of the, out of the ocean. But it's coming out to being fully loaded, about the same cost, maybe slightly higher than, than to, to import that water from Colorado River. The real problem is 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when we suddenly have a, 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 a drought like we had 15 years ago, and I don't remember the exact date, but in, in California, uh, where industries were leaving. I mean, we can't live without water. And upstream, we've got the whole southwest that is running out of water. So how... So we live next to a reservoir, which is the ocean, and 97.5% of all the water in the, in the world is in the ocean. Uh, and we are over-extracting on land, and we're having less rainfall and things like that. 
So the question is, how are we going to deal with that five years from now and ten years from now? So there's a whole security aspect to this. And if we care about our brother, um, then we that are close to the ocean uh, should be thinking about uh, essentially uh, helping the people that are upstream who can't afford to do what we have, which is use the ocean. So my answer is rather uh, two-leveled. We can look at the direct cost today, and it's it's not terribly dissimilar uh, from from uh, conservation and other other costs. Um, but I think it will be quite a bit less expensive when it's going to be 15 and 20 years from now, particularly with droughts continuing. And the people upstream, I was actually at a conference, and I talked to somebody from southern Nevada water, and they're prepared to pay people on the coast to do desal to help defray the cost because they have no options. If you're in Nevada, what are you going to do? So are we just going to tell them, I'm sorry, you're going to be without water because we, some 40 years ago, signed a contract to get more of the Colorado River water? I don't believe that's the right way we as a country should be acting. So it's a very difficult answer to a very important question. Some very tough water wars going on. There's what, what was the state of Georgia tried to move its uh, its state boundary a mile north to, in, in a big water grab. Uh, it's in the courts. It's going to be be a hot issue. Anyone else on that before we, um, Jason? Yeah, I, w- I would just say, you know, there are some regions of the world where that are extremely water constrained. You know, obviously the, the reason Israel is one of the leaders in in desal is is because of you know it's a desert. In places that are less water constrained, I do think. Anytime we're talking about an infrastructure that's going to be long-term and that's high energy usage, you know, I'll go back to the point that I think, you know, the alternative conservation measures, you know, I'm, you know, in, in the community that I'm in, I'll use a very micro example. There are some pretty radical things you can do for, you know, gray water and catching rainwater that really reduce your water needs. And it also turns out when I mentioned those, that 40 percent, we have a 40 percent lower level of water use than the, than the, than the, the state average. So we have very little, but there's a lot of variability in that. It turns out a lot of people are doing their part in there, you know, but there's some, still some people at that right end of the distribution that have the two swimming pools and the landscaping. And the question is, that gets in some interesting political, legal, and kind of moral. Do you just at some point say, hey, as a community, we've done our best, we're going to get a desal plant? Or do you say, it, it's just not right that some people use a disproportionate amount of a public resource? And and start on that. And I I think there's just some interesting, I don't know the answer. If that has the potential to make the need for a desal plant less, then I think the question has to be asked. Well, you wrote a book about what uh, environmentalists environmentalists need to know about economics is pricing a tool so that make those swing pools very expensive. And then (laughs) this is, I think this is a great question because Yes, we already have tiered pricing. You know, it's about 150% of the median usage for a family. You get a certain block price. It's low. It's for your showering and everything. And then above that, it goes up. As we know, there are people with enough money that it doesn't matter, right? We have, you know, Mark Zuckerberg just bought a house in my area. We have the owner of Netflix in my area. There's people who, you know, you can raise price of water, whatever. There, it does. It's a rounding error to them. We have economic inequality in this country that has created an elite that can buy as much of whatever they want. And so I come back, do we, is there, do we just say it's a free market, we priced it, and therefore, you know, if you're wealthy, you can do it, and we're going to look at other means. You can have your five swimming pools and your, you know, and your, you know, your plum trees around your house. 
my you can kind of tell by my 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 inflection <laughs> that I, I'm thinking maybe we need to question that when it's a public resource that has public implications. People who want to have their own things that don't have these impacts on other people, you know, you want to have your st- as many stamps as you want, you know. You can have your stamp collection that costs you millions of dollars. I don't care. When it's water, um, maybe the state and the public has a say in how much is your fair share. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hi, my name is Tim Dowdy. I'm an alumni here. Um, going off of what Jason touched on with, like, rainwater, uh, in terms of uh, generating revenue to solve some of these complex problems is uh, the so-called rain tax, which would be a tax calculated on impervious surfaces on a property lot. Is that a viable policy tool in terms of uh, generating revenue for us to solve some of these problems? Rain tax. There's something sure to a sure winner in Washington. Let's uh, <laughs> yeah. First I've heard of that. Um, well, I'll just I'll speak. Let me just take us as a moment to speak very highly of a, an organization that's in our in our in our lo- wider community called Ecology Action of Santa Cruz. They're really one of the premier organizations that's pushing a lot of just amazing conservation efforts. And so one thing they're doing is actually working with developers to create. Um, um, permeable surfaces for driveways and um, for landscaping so that you get immediate recharge of aquifers because for those people who don't know you know once you start paving over area that water then runs into the sea it often runs with oil and chemicals and nitrate you know so it's polluted water in the sea bad it also doesn't allow the aquifer to recharge so then coming back to Michael the technology we have new technology now of these permeable surfaces and there are now tax incentives I don't know anything about the rain tax but I know about the the, the carrot side of the you know helping developers take it and giving them incentives so you kind of get these win-win. So I think as much as many of these things here are challenges and their costs and we can kind of go, oh, my God, it's the environmentalist again telling us what we can't do, we want to change that. You know, we can get – we can boost jobs with new technology. We can, you know, develop and have our houses and our businesses and then also prevent pollution. You know, this is not – this is not rocket science. This is more a political will and a kind of a social transformation than, than you know, that's really what it's more the the, the impetitive. There's also a defensive part of that, I believe, where uh, porous surfaces are less likely can slow down flooding. If we're talking about, uh, we think yep. in the future that rainfall will happen in uh, more intense periods, less more uh, less predictable, and come in, in bigger episodes, and then then. Uh, the less it's paved over, the more it kind of uh, helps the flooding situation. Exactly. This is the. I mean, I hate to be cliche with win-win kind of thing, but these are the, the, that that fall into that category. Paving stones instead of concrete. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Yeah, I'm Jordan Sanchez. I'm a student here at Monterey Institute, and uh, just kind of building on just kind of building on um, what Jason was just saying about social transformation and the give and the political will. Um, given the attention deficit of the American people when uh, in the media cycles that we're living in now and the political climate. Obviously, we just went through the whole government shutdown. Um, how do you guys see the role of, uh, of private industry in forging a, forging a path forward? And uh, maybe uh, Michael can kind of speak to this one. Michael I Jones? I, need, I think I need a little help. Give me a little more input. I mean, how would private industry... Uh, I'm saying, the, like, given the gridlock in government, how do you see the role of, of private investment in moving a lot of the agenda forward and, and blueing the, the economy? Blueing the economy. In, in the old days, the federal government would step yeah. in with some big dollars to do something like this. That ain't going to happen these days. Yeah, that's exactly what I – yeah, that's better rephrased. Um, 
this is a okay interesting question uh, very difficult pro- problem for us uh, first of all there there hasn't been a lot of outside investment in the in the blue tech for the most part there's some sectors that have had some uh, some areas in robotics uh, certainly desalination has but a lot of areas ocean observation many are small companies that don't get venture capital or uh, there hasn't been banks that have focused on it part of the issue is very tangible how do you how do you liquefy an asset if it's a fish that are out in a farm out in the middle of nowhere? Um, so there are some very, very real issues in terms of financing this. So the private sector um, doesn't have – there isn't the, the private sector funding that might drive it at the, at, at the state or federal level. And then, as I mentioned, I think earlier, um, a lot of this industry is very invisible. Uh, one reason it's invisible is they're so export-oriented that – a company in San Diego, I was the CFO of a world's fastest growing manufacturer of mini ROVs, so single person deployable tethered robots. Uh, we, the company grew 20 to 40 percent per annum for every year of its life. Uh, we sold it a couple of years ago, it grew at 100 percent the following year. Um, so fast growth, uh, but 1 to 2 percent of its sales were in San Diego. The balance were all around the world. As a result of which, those people don't belong to the Chamber of Commerce, they don't belong to Economic Development Corporation. So Essentially, they have virtually no influence. It's going to be because economists and, and people like Jason and think tanks and, and uh, elect officials and, poli- and, and uh, economic development people begin to understand the importance of the sector, uh, that, that it's going to start being noticed. Because the people that are in the sector, strangely enough, um, don't reach out the way accountants and lawyers and bankers in a, in a particular region do reach out. It, and that's what makes this industry so interesting. It's so fast-growing. I, uh, I tell elected officials and economic development people, it's like opening up your door and finding a cornucopia of, of wonderful things that you didn't know existed there. You know, as a child, I wanted candy. Today, as an economic development person, I want, I want really good, sustainable, clean, fast-growing, export-oriented, blue-collar, you know, driving jobs. But as a practical matter, those people don't belong to the chambers of commerce. They're invisible. I don't know if I answered your question what you expected, but it's, it's very interesting. The blue economy, that's the reason it's not understood. Look, how does an industry that's this old not have – I go to the Department of Commerce and nobody's ever heard of it. Uh, the the uh, Department of Commerce paid uh, Michael Porter um, to do at, – at Harvard – to do a study on all the all the clusters, they told me to register our cluster, and there's like 47 industries. Maritime's not an industry you can you can even register. Now how is that? Three quarters of the world, I mean, 72 percent of the world is water, 65 percent, 66 percent is ocean. It every second breath comes from the ocean. Uh, it's the fastest growing industry in San Diego, and it's completely invisible. So my own personal goal is to get the president of the United States talking about the blue economy. Mary Hagedorn. I would like to add to that, too, because I think it has repercussion in terms of biodiversity and um, ecosystems, health and ecology, because unless people value it and it's in dollar and cent, dollars and cents, they will not pay attention to maintain it. And so having this kind of information, having these kinds of numbers are critical to um, main, maintaining biodiversity in our oceans. So I would second everything that we're, we're talking about here as saying it's critical for all aspects of the ocean and certainly our health on the planet. We have about four minutes left. Uh, let's have our next question. Welcome. Thank you. 
I'm Stacy Leininger. I'm an intern at the Monterey County Weekly, and I'm doing a blog on this discussion tonight. And I'd like to get your best quote on Blue Economy from each of you. Spot on. Best quote. Mary Hagedorn. Oh, dear. <laughs> I don't work on the blue economy. I'll do my best. Um, I think that I will echo Jane Lepchenko's um, recent article and say that it's time to stop arguing about global climate change and start thinking about how we're going to measure it and have action plans and move forward with actually doing things to, to start changing things in the future. Jason Scores? So goes the ocean, goes the world. Michael Jones? Uh, California has an opportunity to be the world leader and uh, in developing and promoting sustainable science-based ocean industries. I'd like to ask each of you, we haven't talked much about aquaculture or fisheries, management of fisheries. Uh, as people who are really concerned about the health of the oceans, do you eat fish? What kind of fish, Mary Hagedorn? I do eat fish, and I eat a lot of Pacific fish. And um, Mahi Mahi from Hawaii, I'm probably <laughs> It's yeah. very good, Mahi. But a lot of that comes from the Marshall Islands. We fly in, and um, so um, and we do have a very robust aquaculture um, uh, industry in Hawaii. I think people are very interested in it. It's it's highly prized. So I think that is an area that Hawaii would love to grow in even more. And can that be done sustainably? There, you know, we have um, we have a very good group, um, uh, Oceanic Indi the Oceanic Institute that's doing um, offshore farming. I don't know enough about some of the impacts, but so far it seems to be doing pretty well. Jason Scores. Um, I've been vegan for 20 years, um, so no, I do not eat any fish. Um, but uh, I think I think the main thing I think fish can be done sustainably. And some of my students are working on that. I'll give a plug for a local catch, Monterey Bay, um, that's really trying to promote this, and it's local. Um, the key thing with sustainable fish, and I, talk, I say this, I'll get this out there, is most of it's mislabeled. More than 50% of fish is mislabeled. So even you go through all the certification, you do everything, you read the seafood watch card, you do all that, um, more than half the time it's not what you think it is. So that undermines the system. So until we get the traceability right, which comes back to technology, a lot of it is the new technology, and that is the big thing in sustainable fish. How can we know what you're getting is what you're getting? Everyone can recognize an avocado or a piece of bacon on their plate. How many people know what fish it is really once it's cooked? One out of a hundred. So uh, I still say go vegan, but if you're going to eat fish, uh, go go uh, go local with someone you can trust. And quickly, is there something that you would recommend to be a smart fish consumer for those people who do want to be smarter fish consumers? Seafood Watch, which comes out of the Monterey Bay Aquarium, yeah. you mentioned that. Yeah, download the app for that on your smartphone and, and use that as best you can. Michael Jones. Uh, I eat fish, uh, and I believe that aquaculture is one of the solutions uh, f uh, for the world. Uh, I don't believe we can create enough protein without it. Uh, we import $15 billion of fish a year right now. Uh, we're importing it from places that don't have the same science-based industries that we have. So for all of you that eat fish in the audience, the carbon footprint to bring that from Chile or from China or from Vietnam, leaving aside whether they felt it mel melamine or not, um, <laughs> you know, we're not doing the right thing. Uh, and we have to uh, use aquaculture as one of the tools for creating protein for the world. And I would buy local. Okay, we have about one minute left to uh, to wrap it up and end up on a on a positive note. Jason, you were very astute earlier at sort of turning things around to upbeat and uh, and solutions. So uh, wrap it up for us and uh, leave us on a high note. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'll just say that I think you know 
not to be cliche here, but every challenge is an opportunity. And luckily, we see things aligning now. We see the science is aligning, industry is getting it, and we have this amazing technological opportunity. And then in Monterey Bay Area, we're really um, we're generating the kind of intellectual policy leadership to really take all these pieces together and then uh, spread it globally. So this is this is the place to be if you want to do this. Our thanks to our guest today at Climate One meeting at the Monterey Institute of International Studies. Uh, Jason Scores, Director of the Center for the Blue Economy at the Monterey Institute. Mary Hagedorn, Research Scientist with the Smithsonian Institution. And Michael Jones, President of the Maritime Alliance in San Diego. I'd like to thank you all for coming today and thank our listeners on KAZU and KSPB-FM. Thanks for coming, everyone.